Hello and welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Travis and the Thea from The Man Who from 1999, which is in the period covered by Tom Clayton's new book, When Quiet Was the New Loud. Tom's excellent book revisits the acoustic airwaves from 1998 to 2003, a period in music that has kind of been unfairly maligned. I've covered what I think about that period, Tom, but was that the aim of the book, to to revisit critically appraise what is kind of the zeitgeist at the minute, which is a bit unfair? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've been writing for music websites for about 10 years now, and um, I've kind of fallen into writing anniversary pieces for various albums from the past, and it got to around maybe three or four years ago, and I began to realise I was writing 20th anniversary pieces for quite a few of the albums that I loved to growing up with around that time, sort of my early teens. And I also realised that quite a lot of them weren't really seen as very cool. And there is a kind of stigma. It's not maybe not as severe as that, but when a lot of these bands are brought up, they're not necessarily seen as, as they weren't on the cutting edge. And they have been sort of slightly overlooked, as that whole period has really. It was a strange time because it was not one thing or the other and nothing really established itself truly. The only word that seems to have stuck from that period is acoustic. How did you decide which were the bands that you covered in in the book? Sure. Well, this kind of new territory, there isn't really a book that covers this period before. So, you know, in one sense, it was quite exciting because it's a blank canvas to work with. But at the same time, no one's really gone in and separated anything out before or categorised it in any kind of cohesive way. So I wanted to do it broadly chronologically. So the first section of the book covers the immediate post-Britpop years. So we're talking sort of 1998 and 1999, at which point bands like Blur and Oasis were beginning to implode in this quite spectacular way, re- releasing these long, very dense albums, which for somebody who was just getting into music then, as I was, they felt really kind of impenetrable and quite strange. And I was sort of picking up these records and going, what on earth is everyone so excited about? These are really odd, odd things. And so at that point, Travis and David Gray buck the trend a little bit by doing something that was sounded mature and concise and classic. And I think that's what I've latched onto. And that's what the first sort of section of the book covers. They weren't necessarily considered part of the acoustic movement at its core, but they were sort of there or thereabouts. And they sort of began kicking off the whole thing, you know, that kind of singer-songwriter tendency that there was for the next few years. The second section covers, it's more to do with the uh, the Manchester scene that was was coming around at that point. So that covers Elbow, Doves, Bandy Drawn Boy um, and Alfie. Both the, the latter, of course, were both sort of linked to uh, Andy Votel's Twisted Nerve records. It was a very fluid scene and lots of fans played on each other's records, etc. The third section covers... Coldplay and Snow Patrol <laughs> in a way that I think, you know, those two bands have, have probably borne the brunt of they're probably the least cool, in inverted commas, bands that I cover in the book. But they are important, I think, in their way. And, it, and it's, you know, it's easy to forget that Coldplay especially were considered quite important and quite sort of innovative and up and coming. They were compared to Radiohead very frequently when they were bringing out Parachutes. Um, and it was the same thing with Snow Patrol, really. You know, they were considered one of the hip, young Scottish, um, not Scottish, sorry, they, they they always are considered sort of Scottish because they were part of that Glasgow scene. Of course, they're in Northern Irish. Of course, they still sell millions and millions of records. And, you know, they probably don't care how cool they are. I think Chris Martin said that 
Coldplay are never going to be cool. And then the fourth section is about the new acoustic movement, which was a, a sort of strange phenomenon and, and was really kicked off by Kings of Convenience, quite as the new Loud, of course, their, their debut. And, and, and also kind of Turin Brakes and Catherine Williams, because they are the kind of British equivalent, the, the closest that we, we found to that. And then, of course, the final section is is um, bands who, well, really it was an excuse for me to write about three bands that I really enjoyed at the time and felt hadn't been completely sort of vindicated critically or re-examined properly. That covers um, Logold's first record, Just Backward of Square, which is a really wonderful and unfairly forgotten record. Also the first multi-historical society record and uh, Electric Soft Parade's debut, which I think we're going to talk about later. Yeah. So it, it was a choice really, I, I mean a combination of a personal choice and also gathering from various sources the kind of what the critical consensus was around that time. This is going to be an era which people disagree about constantly because there is no set way of talking about it yet. So, you know, who knows if I did the right thing or not? There is so much there to talk about and so much interesting music being made at that time that I think that, you know, I wanted to cover as much as possible uh, and to dispel the myth that it was it was all just dull and, and uh, beige, really. Yeah, well, let's dig into that first track that we played, The Fear by Travis. The man who, obviously, multi-million selling now, but actually a lot darker and interesting than what people think about it now, a, a much more interesting record? I think so, certainly. And it was, a, you, you forget at the time, but it was a huge leap as well from what Travis was doing with their first album, Good Feeling, which came out in 97. And they made this really interesting transformation from quite a boisterous, almost like trad rock sort of band. You know, they had some really good singles and sort of latched onto the end of Britpop. They toured with Oasis and they were, they were seen as like the next in that line really and then they swerved a little bit when it came to making their second record uh, they worked with Nigel Godrich who had just wrapped on producing OK Computer and there was a maturity to Fran Healy's songwriting began to creep in which was something that hadn't been touched for quite a long time by big British bands and when they released Writing to Reach You they, I think there was a sense that this band had moved on very quickly and had matured very quickly to a sound which hadn't really been heard for quite a while. Fear, especially that there are production touches in there, which you can tell are, are, are sort of slightly indebted to Radiohead. But at the same time, they were bringing vulnerability and sort of a sense of quietness to, to their music, which I don't think any bands were really attempting at that point. And, and when The Man Who came out, there was a sense of, have we done the right thing? And, you know, is this... Is this going to land with people? Are people going to like this? Luckily for them, it turned out to be exactly what people were after <laughs> at that point. You know, they, they managed to second guess the, the public mood at that point. And it just happened to dovetail beautifully with what people were feeling at that point. Next to an artist that you've mentioned briefly earlier, and quite a different career trajectory to Travis, an artist that released material through that Britpop period, David Gray, but he became a phenomenon. The next track being Please Forgive Me, which has got a bit of a dance reason for why it emerged in terms of popularity. That's right, yeah. As you say, David Gray had moved through the 90s in a way that didn't make an awful lot of impact. There's a sense of him being a man out of time for much of the 90s. You know, There wasn't a huge appetite for singer-songwriters at that point. The stock had fallen a little bit with them. And... He struggled to sort of break through for much of, of the 
the 90s, I would say, and switched record labels before his third album, which again, they, you know, EMI didn't really have any idea what to do with him. And so he found himself as a bit of a crossroads. You know, he'd been out of America and, and returned to London, having ditched most of his band and just started jamming in his bedroom with this uh, drum machine. I think at this point he was feeling pretty disconsolate, didn't really have much of an idea of what he was going to do next. And was just sort of working with one other of his uh, of his bandmates, drummer, and they they just kind of worked something out. Uh, he describes working with this the, the Roland Groove Box. I think it's at a dinner party, and he goes upstairs at one point just to try this thing out. Please forgive me, emerges almost fully formed <laughs> from from this uh, machine. You know, he describes in, a, in an interview with the Guardian around one of the anniversaries about how that was the kind of catalyst for White Ladder. And establish that sound very, very quickly. You know, that sort of, that dance connection that was there. He, he knew Orbital very well. Uh, in still works, still does. <laughs> He's married to Olivier Hartnell. And um, I think that there was, um, there was a sense that he wanted to try to move things on a bit uh, in terms of his sound. Wasn't really getting anywhere with the kind of traditional, slightly folky. And, it, and then he kind of moved into the sort of rocky area as well, which didn't work all that well either. Much like Travis had done almost by accident, he kind of hit upon this mood which was affecting clubbers by that point of this kind of like slightly reflective, maybe slightly more mature, a very sort of um, after hours sound. Please Forgive Me kind of triggered the rest of White Ladder in a way that just speaks to that sort of creative tsunami <laughs> that often the best music is made in that way and it just kind of it's a bit of inspiration and it's a really beautiful track and yeah i much prefer the um the album version uh which is slightly longer it's remarkable you know it's quite a simple set of chords but there's there's really something to it and i think that carries through to the rest of white ladder as well again it's one of those records that not many people because it was bought in such massive volume not many people kind of looked directly sort of into the heart of it and, and, and didn't really kind of appreciate perhaps the, the the backstory behind it. You know, it was just one of these things that you stuck on. But yeah, there's, there's a lot to it and I think it's really worth revisiting.
If I act a little strange For I know not what I do Feels like lightning running through my veins Every time I look at you 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 We discussed some of those dance routes in relation to our last track. Doves obviously came from Sub Sub, who had that massive hit back in the early 90s, had an about turn by the late 90s. And we have the Cedar Room from their debut EP, which the original release of this was very, very obscure. But obviously, over the next decade or so, actually became a very significant band. Yeah, I think, as you say, those are a really um, interesting example of another set of musicians who came through the 90s in a way, in sort of opposition to David Gray, they were hugely successful with Sub Sub. They had top five singles, they were very well respected, and, and they just sort of drew to a close. Well, everyone knows the story of this ruinous fire that came over their studio. Uh, you know, through the book, I interviewed Andy Williams from Dubs, and, and he said that that kind of represented ground zero for them. And they had to make a choice. It was basically a choice of between giving up completely or starting again with something completely different. I think that they saw that fire as a, as a symbolic end for Sub Sub. The Cedar Room is, is a really, it's the track that Lost Souls, their debut album as Dubs, kind of builds towards. It's a record that's very obviously made by people with a deep appreciation of dance dynamics and who know how to build a set, as it were. And so they build towards the Cedar Room with, you know, there are there are quite a lot of long and, and jammy and very melancholy songs on Lost Souls. It's another one of those records that's a lot deeper and, and more denser than, than a lot of people give it credit for. And it builds towards the Cedar Room in a way that makes a lot of sense dynamically. You know, there are, there are different sort of ebbs and flows to it. But I mean, the Cedar Room is an absolutely magnificent achievement. Uh, I think it's one of those tracks that it uh, suggested a pathway forward for that kind of anthemic British guitar music in a way that felt not only respectful of the past, but also felt more innovative and, you know, a bit like David Gray had done, picked up those elements of dance music here and there. I love the final couple of minutes where they just sort of play and you can hear sort of Jimmy in the background. Ooh, it's just great. Um, 
there was a sense that they had become this sort of come down band. You know, I think a lot of bands kind of fitted into that category at that point. By the time Last Broadcast came around, which was their next record, they were suddenly massive and they built up critical momentum and momentum with fans as well. They toured a huge amount. So the last broadcast was number one.
there's a bit of synergy with our next band as we move forward a couple of years. Again, we've got this Manchester area going on. We've got like a an obscure debut EP. We have Elbow and Newborn from their original Newborn EP, which again was from their debut album, in, in this case, Asleep in the Back. The song itself, Newborn, has got a similar sound to a song called Entangled by Genesis. Interesting how Elbow have pulled from different influences. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think there are many bands that you could say draw equal influences from DJ Shadow and Genesis. <laughs> um, you know, it's... Uh... It's a quite an amazing sound, and actually, you know, as I write in the book, Doves and Elbow have had these twin-tracked careers where they sort of mirror each other's progress and mirror each other's sound to a certain extent. I think they both drew on trip hop. Uh, they both drew on the kind of post-rock of bands like Talk Talk, and in, in Elbow's case, they drew on on Genesis and Peter Gabriel. Not at least because Guy Garvey sounds a bit like Peter Gabriel. I mean, it's kind of indisputable entangled is a really interesting track because it moves around in a way that you know there, there is a fairly clear mirroring with newborn entangled never quite takes off in the way that newborn does you know there's a point two-thirds of the way through newborn where it just completely explodes and everything just ramps up and there's a huge kind of cathartic release the original track never really gets there in in those terms but elbow there's this famous adage that it took them 10 years to make their first record they were a band for that long they weren't really making sort of elbow flavored music until maybe four or five years before sleep in the back came out they were actually given quite a big setback because they were dropped by island probably i I can't remember exactly when it was i think maybe 98 they had to kind of go back to square one they were offered this big deal uh, and then they just got dropped and they had to start again, basically. And that's where the newborn EP comes in, it released on Ugly Man, which was just sort of a small label. And picked up by John Peel, who played it quite heavily on his shows. And then, you know, they were already incredibly respected on the, that scene as well. And things just managed to fall into place for them. They re-recorded parts of the Sleep in the Back with Ben Hillier. He did a, a really beautiful job with that record it's immaculately produced there's a huge vein of melancholy in that record as well it's it's very much an album about the kind of uneasy relationship you have with your hometown there are lots of thoughts about escape there's lots of references to claustrophobia but even in the first track you know any day now let's get out of this place it's a mature record you know it doesn't feel like a debut at all uh, there are lots and lots of different sounds that emerge in there you know there are some very very dark moments and very sort of like moments that rely on groove more than anything else and then there are some more sort of traditional songs as well some very beautiful light moments and some really kind of slightly terrifying dark moments as well um i think the end of newborn probably really counts among among those sort of vertiginous uh, moments that come through but i think guy garvey is, is a wonderful songwriter and and continues to be really you know i think i, I think that their lyrics always match the quality of their music you know guys is a poet you know as as their career has gone gone through they they've they've obviously become huge in the wake of that that mercury win for the seldom scene kid which which obviously was felt like a real vindication for them certainly but it also brought them to kind of a pop audience that maybe they weren't expecting at the very beginning uh, and it has moved them in a slightly more more mainstream direction but i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing they, they seem to have managed to achieve that rare trick of managing to keep hold of both their fan base 
from the very beginning and also attracting new people as they go along without having to make too many compromises with their sound and, that, and that, that's largely due to the quality of the songwriting the sleep in the back it had a similar effect as uh, lost souls in that it was you know it didn't do massively well in terms of its chart position spawned a few top 40 singles but it laid the groundwork for the rest of their career and when their second album cast of thousands came around that was an enormous smash and again it was it was on the back of quality songwriting critically acclaimed debut and lots and lots of touring. I'll be the corpse in your bathtub Useless I'll be as deaf as a post If you hold me like Thank you. 
but is that Fred really about the Manchester theme? We have Badly Drawn Boy and uh, The Shining from his huge, huge album, The Hour of Bewilderbeast there. So what was the, the, the arc of Badly Drawn Boy, Damon Goff being... What was he doing in the 90s in, in the run-up to that album? Was it Did it take quite a number of years to, for him to get success? Was he, was he on the scene for long? He was, yeah. Um, he was he was sort of in and around the, that scene for a long time as, as a singer-songwriter and made friends with, well, then the, the head of Twisted Nerve Records, Andy Votel, in the mid-90s. They ended up becoming very close friends and, and uh, he came on board with, with Twisted Nerve. He ended up sort of releasing EPs intermittently, I think, First one was 96 or 97. He was seen as a bit of a curio, really, for a long time. People kind of struggled to place him. There was there was a lot of talk of a, a sort of British Beck or um, maybe someone who was joining that kind of anti-folk scene that was going around at the time, people like the Moldy Peaches and Regina Spector and, and people like that, and didn't really fit into any of those categories particularly. And there was also this disconnection between... He looked like quite a traditional folk singer, you know, the beanie hat and the beard. But actually, he was doing things, you know, with drum machines and little Casio keyboards and, and that sort of thing, making these strange, murky, lo-fi records that didn't really fit with any of that. And so there was a sense, you know, he released three EPs and then another one called It Came From The Ground. And after that, he, you know, he was signed up with XL. They took him on and he went away to make the Arab Bewilderbeast. And I think there was a sense that anything could happen here. He worked with quite a few different producers, uh, largely in his own studio. And he seemed to work with most of the available musicians in Manchester at that point. <laughs> you know, there's a huge cast of both instruments and players in, in the Arab Bewilderbeast. And so the sense that you probably had before it came out was that this might be a bit of a mess. And it couldn't be further from the truth. The Arab Bewilderbeast is an extraordinary record and one which feels incredibly cohesive, especially given the slightly skittish nature of, of the early stuff. There are still those moments of lo-fi playfulness and sort of strange little interludes and one point at which it sounds like the mixing desk has been chucked underwater. It's still an odd record, but it all hangs together and everything is very precisely placed in order to create this effect. It's, it's as much a case of building your own world with its own kind of internal rules and 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 way of doing things as it is an exercise in classic songwriting. You know, there are probably six or seven classic singles on there. They, I mean, he could have just carried on releasing singles from that for most of the next two or three years and been absolutely fine. We heard The Shining, is that right? Yeah. yeah. The Shining is, really sums up that feeling of this is a, a step up from whatever he was doing before. You know, the structure is, is really clever. You know, that kind of brass intro is, is so evocative and so beautiful. And then you have this kind of like slow build. I love his kind of almost like offhand delivery, but you know that there's, there's, there's so much kind of emotion behind it all. And just the way that those arrangements are built so carefully and so kind of with such tenderness, it, it's a really beautiful achievement. And they kind of sets the tone for the rest of the record, really. You know, there's obviously there are quite a few producers worked on it, but it seems to have this kind of through line of just quality all the way through. And, and Damon Goff said it was supposed to kind of represent a relationship as it unfolds. And I think that there are moments of pure euphoria and then there are moments of self-doubt. There's there's what um, Andy Votel calls the water suite, which is uh, three songs linked together, um, camping next to water, uh, stone on the water, and another pearl, which are all sort of water-themed. And they, um, they kind of represent this strange kind of swell 
in the record where it goes in a different direction for a while and then is lulled back to its to its pop part. It's, it's just for me personally, it was a you know a revelation. You know, this is this was music that was inward looking, but also felt very innovative and felt like it could be anything. Another band that had come up when I was kind of interviewing almost everyone for this this book was the Beta Band, who I think are you know incredibly influential, more so than even they might think, and. There's definitely elements of that in, in Wildebeest as well. A remarkable record, really. And and then to go on and, and make your second album, the soundtrack to Richard Curtis' film was uh, was probably the most unexpected thing that he could have done. But I think that kind of suits Damon rather well. Oh 
swollen rift came like a gift. Your body moves ever nearer, and you will dry this tear. Now that we're here, and grieve for me, not history. But now I'm dry of thoughts, wait for the rain, then it's replaced, sunsetting. What we get next is another band tied to that Manchester scene, Alfie. The song bookends from their If You're Happy With You Need Do Nothing album. So we've talked a lot about success and bands that on the whole have you know managed to last and, and, and sell a lot of records. But Alfie being a case of despite the quality of the music, they weren't able to make that breakthrough to su- sustain a career. So it's a bit of a, a sadder tale, really. Yeah, it, Alfie were, were such an interesting band and they operated in a way which was more of a collective than any of the other bands. You know, they had a lot of players and, and lots of different instruments. They also provided backing for quite a few of the other Manchester bands around that time. They were, they were Damon Goff's band on tour for quite a lot of the, the World Beast shows. And they were, they've been sort of unfairly overlooked, in, in my humble opinion. They sort of came about again Lee Gorton, who is the kind of band's flame keeper and lead singer and lead songwriter, was friends with, with Andy Botel again, and then Botel sort of took them on. They made a few EPs, and then If You're Happy With You Need Do Nothing is uh, is a collection of those first three EPs, another mirroring with the Beta Band, of course. And they the music that they made was slightly odder, perhaps, than... You know, a lot of the acoustic bands that were around at that point, you know, they were closer to sort of bands like Tortoise and Jim O'Rourke and Yola Tengo and that kind of slightly odd, jazzy, there was a, a sort of pastoral element to them as well. And it was maybe that they, they didn't have, a, they, they didn't have a big single and they also didn't have that groundswell of critical mass that you need to sustain a career at that point. They were very experimental and probably more experimental than any other band that I mentioned in the book really and and they always wanted to push on and do something else and i wonder if you know that was what did for bookends is, is a gorgeous song it's it's the opener from what they they do call their debut album they're one of those bands where it's difficult to identify which which instrument is playing at any one time <laughs> but they've got hugely distinctive sound and obviously lee gorton is, is a really distinctive singer there was even a, a slight 
comparison with him to Ian Brown. I don't think that's necessarily unfounded. At that point, a lot of critics were looking for the next Roses or the next Oasis. You know, the Oasis had kind of, they quietened down a bit after Be Here Now and they, they were in a sort of state of dormancy. And there was a void to be filled there and, and people kind of sensed a bit, of, they had a bit of swagger about them for some of their, for some of their singles. But I think that they were always a bit too interesting to be that next trad rock band. There was always some kind of weird left turn they were willing to take that other bands weren't. There's quite a lot of psychedelia in there as well. But as you say, I, I don't think that there was too much in the way of commercial appeal. They actually signed to Parlophone for their the third album. I think that they found that there was an expectation on them there that they were going to make a big single they just couldn't quite get to and that they wanted to be. They were trying to be commercial and they just couldn't quite do it have a huge respect for them for, for sticking to their guns you know they could have they could have done a, a pop single and then tried to break through and i think that there was there were attempts to do that but the the music as it stands is really really interesting there are a few bands in this book that i think have virtually disappeared from the public consciousness and these are a band that, that do deserve recognition do deserve a bit of reevaluation.
the theme of this of many of the bands that has been UK based. And although Kings of Convenience were Norwegian, I think they'd actually come over to uh, London. The song is a brilliant toxic girl here from Quiet is the New Loud, of course. So yeah, so they, they'd actually come over to London. So they were on on the scene over here around around the early 2000s. That's right. Yeah, they they, they came to London um possibly 99 or 2000 they came over and they they also played at the inner city conference slash festival which took place in manchester uh, every year around that time for sort of emerging bands and um in the city became very uh, influential it, you know it was it was the festival that broke coldplay basically they were found out by sort of industry people at that point and so that you know every year manchester became this focal point for emerging prospects and and kings of convenience came over they sort of unveiled themselves quite quickly into that Manchester scene as well. You know, they were influential on bands like Alfie, but there was always a kind of sort of slight distance with Kings of Convenience. You know, they are, they're a very sort of reclusive band. And Eric was kind enough to to talk to me for the book. And and I think their relationship with the idea of being in a band and their relationship with their music is one that is very much, it's something that we do, but not all the time. And there is a sense that they are, it's just one part of their lives. And I really respect that. Erlen Doy has, has gone on to be a very successful solo artist and Kings of Convenience only ever get together sort of every few years to write and record music. Quite as new, loud, not only quite a snappy title, but also a, a nice way for them to communicate how they wanted to live. It was all about simplicity at that point for them. Their name, Kings of Convenience, is actually a reference to how easily they could get around with just two people and two guitars. And I think that that kind of simplicity and that irony and that slight sort of slyness does feed into that debut album quite nicely. And they have quite a dry sense of humour, especially with Toxic Girl. You know, there's there's a bit of sort of sly nod to them not particularly being very successful with women. Obviously, as a young teenager, I, I identified with that heavily. There is a lovely kind of vein of uh, this kind of slight sort of sarcasm and self-knowledge, which is uh, they're not always given enough credit for, I don't think. Not to mention the fact that they are technically extraordinary. You know, all of the playing on that on that album is exquisite and and really deserves to be held up as as one of the, the best examples of the genre. I think they were sort of they were seen as the kind of high watermark of that acoustic movement, and they certainly kicked off in this country at least the proper core of that movement. You know, I think that there were um, during breaks kind of came in at that same time as well. They were signed to the same label, um, Source, and they released. Both, they both released their debut albums in March 2001. So there was a point at which, you know, it looked like acoustic music had suddenly come to the fore very quickly. But it was obviously the, the groundwork was kind of laid there by bands like Travis. Yeah, I think Kings of Convenience are, you know, there were signs on that first record that they were already operating several levels above their contemporaries. You know, they were, they were really extraordinary. And, you know, the, the next couple of albums that they released periodically over the next few years confirmed that, really. Everything that they do is very considered, even to the point where the remix album that they released shortly after Quiet is the New Loud felt like a really wild gesture, <laughs> even though it was just sort of them working with various sort of electronica and chill-out acts to slightly rework their tracks. And, and I, you know, I, I, I wondered how... Um, how they must have felt handing over those those master tapes that they worked so hard on to um, to uh, be remixed. 
But yeah, I think they're a wonderful, they're a wonderful band. I, I'm really glad they've released released new music. I do think that there's there's a sense now, particularly 20 years on from this this record, that there are still there's still more to come from them, and there's still a lot of uh, acclaim coming their way, which maybe wasn't there to start with. obviously links there with kings of convenience we have mind over money from their mercury music prize nominated album the optimist lp there what were cheering breaks roots how did they come onto the scene then they had an interesting origin really they, they didn't they weren't really part of any scene i think gail and ollie do acknowledge that they, they didn't really come from any any sort of established scene whatsoever they're two school friends uh they just started making music together one of them went off to art school and they needed to make a soundtrack for a, a video that they were making. 
and they just ended up making some soundtrack music together. They played music for a long, long time, you know, since they were since they were kids, really. Eventually, they thought of themselves as this slightly experimental soundtracky. When I spoke to them, they they said that they were quite influenced by bands like Gomez and Beck, like that. Beck keeps on coming up, but they thought when they were going into the studio that they had they were going to make something slightly different to what came out. Ollie describes that they, they found a lot of emotion while they were in the studio, and they ended up making more classically structured songs than they thought they were going to be. That you know there was there was still a sense even even before they made the record that they were going to make something a bit more widescreen, a bit more instrumental based. There were sort of connections to the chill out and even trip hop scene at that point. And they were they were sort of slightly pigeonholed in that area for a while. They appeared on a couple of like hip hop compilations and things and they and they did a late night tales compilation as well. And so I think when when the record arrived, people possibly expected it to be a bit more dance oriented than it was perhaps in the vein of more Chiba and that, that kind of area. But they it was a, a sort of classically acoustic record. It has a lot of that Neil Young-y, Laurel Canyon-y sort of sound. Um, it, it's quite a country-indebted record as well. You know, there's a lot of that Dust Bowl American sound in there, but mixed with this kind of very surreal lyrical content, which is really, it, it felt very original and felt, felt very... Um, fresh at the time and i think it still does to a certain extent i think it's a really classic record mind over money is a really beautiful example of, of what they what they achieved with with that record that i wire guitar line and and ollie's singing in particular beautiful on that, on that track as well they're brilliant live as well that's what stood them in good stead for uh, for a very long time they were one of the bands that took quite a kicking in the intervening years when the acoustic movement started to become a bit of a dirty word and the new rock revolution began to sort of creep forward. And Sure Embrace were kind of in the firing line for that, definitely. You know, they were they were abandoned by a lot of people and dismissed as not, not very cool anymore. Uh, unfairly, of course. The fans that have stayed loyal to them have done so because they are really superb songwriters and an excellent live prospect. And that kind of quality really begins to tell after a long time. And uh, doing some shows for the Optimist's 20th anniversary, I believe, later in the year, which will be, uh, will be really interesting to see. Sinking, staring at ceilings, 
have Catherine Williams and Morning Song from her album Little Black Numbers, which uh, made waves over 20 years now. Catherine Williams been an artist who didn't find a true affinity with folk music, but for other people was labelled folk and she got stuck stuck in the middle. But at the same time, she's been able to plough around for her and uh, continue writing and releasing great music over the last uh, couple of decades but all sparked off from you know some of the early albums one of which was Little Black Numbers. Yeah absolutely I mean she was um, again one of these kind of inscrutable people who didn't come from a particular scene and just began it was literally a case of her playing songs in her bedroom she was encouraged by some friends to go and do some open mic nights and she was spotted went from there really you know it, it, there wasn't any kind of trick to it she was just a very good songwriter 
And the first album uh, that she released, Dog Leap Stairs, was recorded on this tiny, tiny budget. I think it's about £75 or something that won in The Guardian. Uh, she makes that slight estimate. She used a lot of spare studio time going around and borrowed things and made the record that way. The first record was critically adored and, and compared to Nick Drake. So she was she was doing pretty well there. And then Little Black Numbers was was made on a similarly tiny budget, really on her own label and was nominated for the Mercury Prize uh, alongside Bad John Boyd and Coldplay and Doves, all on the same list, all with those kind of debuts that now we're kind of looking back on as, as classic records. But as you say, she's always done her own thing. She's always plowed her own furrow and she's always been really a songwriter of rare quality, really. There was a sense that she was slightly pigeonholed into, into folk at, at some point. And I think certainly after the first album, there was a suggestion that she was going to go down that folk route. And when I spoke to her for the book, uh, she's one of the only, or one of the few artists who was fairly happy to be put in that new acoustic hole because it was it was something that wasn't folk music. <laughs> and um, she, I think she suffered a bit from being not folk enough for the folk purists and too folk for the kind of, you know, singer-songwriter fans. And she says that she falls down the back of the sofa a bit in regard to genre, which I think is very true. At that point, for the new acoustic movement, it was perfect. And she was incredibly popular. And and Little Black Numbers did sold a huge amount, uh, especially off the back of the Mercury nomination. Since then, she's gone on to establish herself as, as one of the, to my mind, one of the best songwriters of the last 20 years everything she touches is just quality uh she's 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 a really really great artist uh she did an album a few years ago called hypoxia which is about sylvia Plath, which is just extraordinary and the pandemic set in she was uh, touring around her the anthology box set which is kind of summing up her career for the last 20 years and it's a it's an incredibly strong body of work and i, I do think that she's Another one of these artists who's due for much more critical appraisal and much more acclaim than she's perhaps given. I know she's respected in, in the singer-songwriter circles, and she does run her own workshops for songwriters now. But I think that she, you know, her work is massively overdue some reevaluation. There's a like a jewel It's the morning So you're going to be There's nobody there 
we get to the final track today we've had hints of psychedelia and a a bit of more electric sound here the electric soft parade biting the soles of my feet from their very uh, well received holes in the wall album so was this one of the songs that acted as a bit of a marker towards the end of what you see of this particular scene yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think, as I mentioned before, the, the the new rock revolution had kicked in pretty strongly by this point. You know, you had debut albums by The Strokes and The Libertines. There was a sense of the spotlight moving away from the acoustic artists at this point, certainly. On both sides of the Atlantic, there was this huge kind of explosion of very, very fast, very loud, exciting new bands, nearly always preceded by The Something. It was incredibly, you know, obviously very exciting to be a part of. Uh, and to, to experience that kind of happening. But at the same time, it meant that the acoustic bands that we got used to having around were suddenly shoved to one side a little bit and, and were sort of not perhaps given the press columns and the um, and the, the love from listeners that they'd previously been used to. When the electric soft break came along, I think that there was a sense that this was a direction, a clear direction for British guitar music to go into and certainly British art rock to go into. They were very much working in the tradition of bands like Superfairy Animals, Six by Seven. They were making rock music, but it was shot through with this kind of experimental sensibility, which really marked them out as quite advanced songwriters. I mean, they were extraordinarily young when this album was released. They were 17 and 19 when they were making it. I, I, I think that they were miles and miles ahead of their time. And really, they're another band who, who deserve huge critical reappraisal. They definitely worked within that psychedelia format. And Biting the Souls of My Feet is a great example of that. You know, it's almost prog in, in some some places with its sort of different sections and, and sort of interludes and things. Holes in the Wall is a very, it's a really exciting and dynamic record. There's There's a lot of very short, sharp indie numbers in its first half, which did get a pretty significant amount of airplay, as I recall. And those singles, I suspect, set listeners up for something which they weren't quite prepared for with the debut album. Their singles are Empty at the End and There's a Silence, which are really snappy and really dynamic and really short. And then you get, like, Silence of the Dark, which is pleasant enough for three and a half minutes, this lovely burst chorus, quite pretty song. And then it kind of dissolves into this strung-out six-minute coda of, like, strange robotic voices and, and what sounds like someone... Uh, unrolling lots of sellotape um, you know it's it's a it's a very sort of odd and experimental move for a, a band especially for such a young band and it just spoke of their confidence they kind of set themselves apart from 
particularly the preceding two or three years where bands have been quite timid. And they came out and said, this is us. We've got this really bold vision. We're good and we kind of know it. And we want to make this proper statement with our debut album. And they really did that. Holes in the Wall, as you say, was critically, hugely acclaimed. And they were really another brilliant, brilliant live act. And there was a sense that this was the next big thing. And then their second record, I think I spoke to them for, for the book and, and they sort of felt that they said what they could with that record and that they the next thing they wanted to do was fierce left turn in every way. And so the next record was The American Adventure, which came out in, in 2002. And it was very odd prospect. <laughs> it had recognisable elements of what had been on Holes in the Wall, snappy guitar action and, you know, quite concise songwriting in places. But then in other areas, it just went wildly, you know, off the rails uh, and was much more improvised, much more prog-led than the previous record. And I think that any kind of mainstream momentum that they built up with Holes in the Wall fell away at that point. When you listen back to the American Adventure today, it's a really great record. There's so much innovation and interest there to be had. But I think in terms of their pop appeal, it went by that point. They're also still making music and really, really great music as well. And they're one of those bands that pop up every few years with a record. They're given really good reviews. Everyone says how much they love them and then they kind of go away again. Um, and I think that there's a sense, certainly for me, that they deserve to be a lot bigger than they are because they're one of these bands that slightly deserves to be seen as a national treasure. They're still making really great stuff and they're still innovating in a way that a lot of their contemporaries aren't. Uh, and that's why I wanted to highlight them in the book, really. They are one of these bands that hasn't been written about very much. Certainly there hasn't been a lot of critical attention paid to them, paid to the first album especially, which is, you know, is a classic. One of the things I wanted to do with that final section of the book was highlight bands that not only pointed directions towards a sort of potentials for new music and new kind of uh, interesting ideas in, in British guitar music, but also people that didn't necessarily get the love at the time and that haven't had that critical vindication from the sort of wider world. And, and you know, there are a lot of bands like that, obviously, and there are probably some that I've left out of the book, but people will be outraged that I have. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you have, at some point you have to stay true to yourself and you have to say, right, these are the bands I want to talk about and these are the bands that I think are important. And that's what I've done. And, and, and I think, I hope anyway, that it's, it not only acts as kind of a nice piece of nostalgia for people, um, you know, we're getting to that kind of nostalgic age or a lot of us who grew up around that time now but also prompts people to listen to stuff from that time they maybe haven't heard before or maybe had completely forgotten about and would appreciate a reminder to and, and it was hugely enjoyable putting it together so um, yeah we'll see how it flies so where, where is the book currently available is it root publishing uh, i would love them to go onto that website it's also available through all the usual book selling outlets but first and foremost i would say that if you can order it from root then please do please try and avoid any larger book websites as you know as a small publisher myself i would say yeah always do that <laughs> it, it's a book that's been obviously close to my heart for a long time and, and i really hope that people get as much from reading it as I did from writing it. That's brilliant. Thanks so much uh, for talking to me, Tom. It's been great to, as we said at the start, listen afresh to material that in some quarters has been unfairly maligned or overlooked. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. All right. Thanks very much again for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers, mate. Bye. Side. 
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you. Thank you.